Our scripture reading this morning is from John 15, verses 1 to 5. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I feel like it's a weird case of deja vu, but I'm back. Good to see you all. Hey, if you're new with us, we are in a series. This is week four, looking at John 15, 1 to 11. Uh, beautiful passage of scripture, and we've been asking questions about what does it mean to abide in Christ? We've been looking at themes of home, themes of fruit, themes of the gardener as it relates to abiding, themes of Pruning. We're going to talk about that today. And today we're going to be asking the question of what does it mean to abide in Christ? If you look at the 11 verses in John, we read five of them today, John mentions abide nine times, which tells us very clearly that it is important. He makes a very clear distinction that those who abide will bear fruit. What does this mean? What should fruit look like in our lives? What does it mean that Jesus is the true vine and the Father is the vine dresser or the gardener? Now, if this is your second or your first or second Sunday with us at Trinity, I am Jeff. I am the executive director at the church. I am husband to Jen. I am father to Hannah and Abby. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a fan of the Dodgers, Lakers, USC football and Baylor basketball. I am not going to apologize. <laughs> I'm someone who believes movies are better than TV. I'm someone who has a hard time asking for help. I am from Escondido, but I am most at peace when I am in, in Mammoth Lakes. I'm a believer that the gospel can change your life, and I'm committed to the local church living out the gospel in our communities. I am. I am statements. The first two words of this verse are so critically important to our passage today. Jesus makes this very famous I am statement where he says, I am the true vine. Consider some famous I am statements in pop culture. I am Groot. I am Batman. I am Spartacus, for some of you old school OG movie watchers. I am Forrest Gump. People call me Forrest Gump. I am statements. What do they do? They help us understand each other in a deeper and more personal way. They are self-identifiers, and they're often declarations of identity, authority, and mission. Think of I am Batman. 
I am Batman sums up all three in those three words, identity, authority, and mission. What is your identity? Batman. What is your authority? Batman. What is your mission? Batman. If I were to ask you your I am statements, maybe if you're taking notes today, you start jotting some notes down. I am who, what would that say about you? The good, the bad, and the ugly. What are things that you love? Who are people that you love? What are things that you struggle with? What are your, identi- your I am statements as it, results, as it relates to your identity, your authority, your mission? And Jesus, throughout the book of John, makes seven unique I am statements pertaining to his identity, his authority, and his mission here on earth. Look at these seven statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Luke Stamps writes for Gospel Coalition. He writes this, Each of these titles is rich with Old Testament symbolism. Taken together, they provide a fascinating insight into Jesus' own understanding of his identity. What is interesting is that in each case, he frames his identity in terms of his saving mission on behalf of others. Bread for the hungry, light for those in darkness, the gate and shepherd for wayward sheep, resurrection and life for those who will die, the way, truth, and life for those seeking the Father, and the vine that gets life to the branches. If we look at these seven I am statements from Jesus, and we look at them as a whole, the first six really focus on Jesus' saving work. But today's I am statement is less about saving and more about growing in Jesus. It is more about growth in the life of the believer. Jesus has a very specific mission for us as, as we identify, as he identifies himself as the true vine. And this mission is what we're going to focus on today. Now, before we jump into John 15, 1, I want to talk about one more I am statement. Thousands of years before Jesus, there was a man named Moses. Most of you have probably heard of Moses. Moses grew up an Egyptian, but he was an Israelite, and he flees Egypt, and then he gets married, and he lives in the wilderness, and he comes to this mountain uh, called Horeb, known as the mountain of God, and there he meets God in this burning bush, okay? God, in all his glory, cannot be seen with human eyes, so he disguises himself as this bush, and he speaks to Moses, and he tells Moses that he's going to send him into Egypt to rescue God's people and take them out of slavery from the hand of the, of the Pharaoh. Then Moses asked God this, this very specific question. He says this in 13. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. I am. 
It's the ultimate statement of self-sufficiency, self-existence, and immediate presence. God, Moses says, who are you? And God just says, I am. I always have been. I always will be. He reflects this in Revelation 1.8, the end of the Bible, where God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, Omega, the last letter. He is the beginning and the end. And the reason this is so important, the reason we don't want to miss the significance of this is that the Gospel of John records seven I am statements. Seven being a holy number. And Jesus, as the second person in the Trinity, exists with the same self-sufficiency, self-existence, and immediate presence as the Lord did when he met with Moses at Horeb. Jesus is the beginning and the end. John makes this so clear in his gospel. and In fact, the first verse in the gospel of John, he says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Speaking of Jesus. If you're new to the faith or you're exploring Christianity and considering whether to follow Jesus, it's so important to know who we are following. We are not following just a man. We're not following just a teacher or a rabbi. We are following all of those things. But we're also following the one who has never not existed. The one who knows no sin, but the one for us became sin so that we may have opportunities to become sons and daughters of God. Our ability to abide is because of Jesus, who is God. And so it's with this authority, centered on his identity and mission, that Jesus says in verse 1, I am the true vine. If you're taking notes today, we're going to look at just one point. Jesus is the only vine that leads to true life. Jesus is the only vine that leads to true life. Now, in the movie Elf, it's an amazing transition that just happened. In the amazing Elf, in the movie Elf, um, Will Ferrell's character, Buddy, comes into that diner in New York City near the beginning, and he sees a sign that says, World's Best Coffee, right? And he comes in and he says what? You did it! Congratulations, world's best cup of coffee. Great job, everybody. Now, if there's a world's best cup of coffee, and I think Mosher may have a slight claim on that, it must, we, it must mean that there are also cups of coffee that are not as good, okay? We see you Panera, all right? <laughs> Likewise, if Jesus is the true vine... It follows that there must be other vines, false vines, deceptive, deceptive vines. There are forces vying for your attention, your affection, that are trying to pull you away from the true vine. Forces that want you to grow in other directions. Now, we're not exactly sure where Jesus is when he gives this, uh, this talk. He was in the upper room, and he's on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. But it may have been because on his way from the upper room to the garden, um, we, there is the temple. And in the temple square hung a massive golden vine 
that hung over the entrance into the temple at Jerusalem. Josephus says that the grapes were as tall as a man. And so Jesus may have been teaching in the courtyard there. and Behind him would have been this true vine, this big vine. And he would have looked at his disciples and there would have been Pharisees and other religious leaders listening. And as soon as he said, I am the true vine, regardless of where he was, they would have known exactly what he was talking about. For Israel had repeatedly failed to bear good fruit in its history. And Jesus is saying, I am here to fulfill the destiny. I am here as Messiah. I am here as the true vine. If we consider Isaiah 5, 7, the writer of Isaiah says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. This idea of the vineyard and vine. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Israel was supposed to be the true vine, but repeatedly failed. But God had a plan in Jesus, sends him into this world to be the one true vine, the Messiah. And I want us to take a minute to take an inventory on this season of our life. As we think about Jesus as the true vine, if we think about other vines, wayward vines, vines that are leading us away from Jesus, where are your affections right now? Where is your attention? Remember, Jonah said this last week, what you love is who you become. In other words, where do you spend most of your time? I know we have obligations to work. We have obligations to family. But when we think about mornings and evenings, when we think about weekends, where is growth happening in your life? I mean, it's happening I think a misunderstanding of growth is going like, well, I'm kind of stagnant with Jesus right now, not really growing. Well, you're growing somewhere. You can't be stagnant. And if Jesus is the true vine, where does he fit into the daily rhythms of your life? Now, this is not meant to be a guilt trip in any way. But John 15 is really clear that if we abide in Jesus, we will see fruit in our lives. I probably should make all of us stop and go, man, where is that fruit? What does that look like? It's a real heart check. It's convicting for me as I read it. And when John's talking about fruit, he's talking about growth. And this should be exciting for all of us. He's talking about the potential for massive growth, massive change in your life through this true vine. How does, so how does this happen? How does the branch grow from the brine? This is really important as we think about faith and who Jesus is. Does the branch get connected to the vine because it's fruitful and moral? In, in other words, we have the true vine and because of the morality, the actions of the branch, it is therefore attached to it. This is what religion tells us, right? If you are moral, If your behaviors are correct, then you can be connected to the power source, the deity, mother nature, energy, whatever it is. If you obey, then you are accepted or connected. 
Conversely, if you disobey, you can be disconnected. But Christianity says the power to change, to act, to see fruit in our life is because you have first received power from the vine. You have grown out of the vine. In other words, you are saved not by works, but by grace. Again, this is a Tim Keller saying, he says, religion says you obey and are therefore accepted. Christianity says you are accepted and therefore obey. And it's out of this grace that we abide in Christ. We will see great fruit in our life. This is what John is talking about in verse five. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And what's amazing is the Bible is going to tell us what that fruit should look like. The very famous passage in Galatians written by the Apostle Paul. He talks about what's known as the fruit of the Spirit. You go, what should fruit be? I think it should largely be this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Who is the key to growth here in Galatians 5? Is it the world? Is it YouTube? Is it self-help? Is it inner motivation? Is it discipline? Is it your will? No, change happens to the Holy Spirit as a result of being connected to the true vine, who is Jesus. That is the only way, let me say it again, that is the only way to achieve lasting and eternal change in your life. Heart change, not behavioral change. Um, Keller talks about the difference in this. He calls, he calls um, the, the will to change mechanical compliance versus a heart change from the spirit as organic change. Mechanical compliance can be done through fear, control, and manipulation. And you may see significant change in your life. It might be fear of losing something. It could be a relationship with a spouse or your kids. It could be a job. But the motivation to change is only because the fear of your fear of loss of something close to you. Uh, just a quick illustration, right? If you're somebody who loves football and you go, it's my passion, it's my heart, that's all I'm going to consume on the weekends. And you go to high school football games Friday night and you watch college football all day Saturday. And then you watch the NFL all day Sunday. But your wife and 12 daughters are like, we don't love football, right? And you're like, but I love football. And your wife goes, listen, this isn't working. This isn't a relationship. You work Monday through Friday, you watch football all weekends. I can't do this anymore. And you go, fine, I'm gonna give up football. I do care about my wife and family more than football, barely, right? And mechanical compliance goes, I'm gonna will it out. I'm going to stop watching football. But what happens? You might change, but there's frustration, there's bitterness, there's resentment, there's anger. Because your will to change based on your own will, will is, did not come out of the genuineness of your heart. Mechanical compliance. Organic change. It's not something that has to be taken away. It's something 
that you have gained, right? It's something you have gained, the true power of joy living within you. If we go back to that illustration about the man with 12 daughters who loves football, right? If you are resting in the spirit, if you're living out the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, etc., then out of that will come a deeper love for your family. And the more you love your wife and your 12 daughters, the more you go, man, football, my idolatry, obsession with football is taken away from what I truly love. And that organic change happens from within. And it's seamless. And it's natural and it's free. And you give it away. It's not taken from you. Side note. Nothing against football. I love football. But isn't that what we long for? Religion says, no, no, take it away, take it away. In fact, the church has been so guilty of this. And I know the students left and went in, but one of the things I'd love to say to them, because the message of the church to teenagers is often, don't, 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 right? Act a certain way. And they go, I'm trying to figure out who I am. And deep down, I'm not sure I believe that. And they go, it doesn't matter. Fake it till you make it. But nobody wants to live that way. And we tell them, act according to this moral standard. And we forget to go after their heart. They go, how how does that come out of their heart? How does the gospel get in there? And we're going to talk about some application in a minute. But let's look at the second half of verse 1. The true, the true vine, cared for and tended by the great gardener. And my father is the vine dresser. You know, I have a neighbor across the street. He's like 75, and he works on his roses every day, pretty much. And there are seasons that, throughout the year where he cuts them way back. You go, man, it's like you just killed the plant. And then all of a sudden, like, as they grow, they grow into these beautiful rose bushes. They grow into their full potential. Right? John 15, 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. This idea of pruning, of taking something away in our life, often is seen as hardship and struggle. Could be pain or loss, loneliness, frustration. But this The father seen here as vine dresser or gardener gives a picture that God is in complete control of all aspects of the growth of the vine. And a part of that growth is the pruning process. And he prunes us because he wants us to grow more beautiful. I want to say that again. He prunes us because he wants us to grow more beautiful, more full of joy and purpose, more into the person he created you and me to be. And listen, this would be a terrifying thing unless we can fully trust the pruning hand of the gardener. He will never prune anything that does not lead to future growth. He does not make mistakes. He is not trying to punish us. He prunes because he loves you and he wants more of you. Not more from you, more of you, of who he created you to be. I want you to think about pruning seasons in your life. Maybe you're in one right now. Does God bring bad things in our life just to prune us? I think is kind of a natural question. That's where my heart goes. And I think the answer is no. If we look at the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2, we see a garden, a garden without sin, 
garden where we walk with God. There's no sin, no death, no pain, no tears, but the world falls into sin in Genesis 3. But God has a plan to rescue us. And that plan is Jesus, the true vine. Now you might say, wait, wait, wait. But wouldn't it be better if I just wasn't pruned? If I didn't experience any hardship, any disappointment, or any pain, wouldn't that be better? And the answer emphatically is no. Because if you didn't go through that pruning process, you wouldn't believe you, wouldn't believe you need a savior. You would be okay and lost, right? We are all dead to sin. But this pruning process allows us to go, man, I need God in my life. Pruning reminds us that we need a savior and it helps us understand who we are. It brings depth and clarity to our I am statement. It's not easy, but you can trust the loving hand of the gardener. So let me close here with some practical help, some things that have helped me in this last year of my life specifically. I'm going to give you three steps if you want to write these down. Step number one, your heart needs space to heal, which means you need to carve time out into your day. This goes back to what we talked about in the beginning. Where do you spend quality time with God? What has your affections? You'll never grow closer to him if you don't spend time with him. So it's, I would encourage you to start with five or 10 minutes only. If you're a morning person, do it in the morning. Night person, do it at night. If lunch is a great one, do it at lunch. Wherever you can do it consistently. If you're here with a spouse or a friend or a roommate, Maybe hold each other accountable. Five or 10 minutes, space, quiet, solitude, silence with God. Step two, write down as many I am statements about yourself, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Be brutally honest. It's only you and God. I am all of these things, okay? Step two. And step three, this might feel a little weird to some of you. Those I am statements that focus on the pruning, that are hard. Either things done to you, things you have done to others, things that are inside your heart, things that are evil or wicked or things that you struggle with, right? Again, we're all in these boats. Grieve those I am statements. Grieve them. Grieve where you've been pruned. Grieve areas that need pruning. Don't rush the process. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, which means we don't receive the blessing unless we are mourning. Grieve it. This is a, this is, um, a direction I've been heading this last year. And I've seen tremendous fruit from just grief, sadness over these things in my life. And the one important part of all of it is don't regret anything. Regret says God made a mistake. God doesn't make mistakes. Grief says that he can redeem that part of my story. So give your grief to God. But what sets Christianity aside is we don't stay in grief. Now we don't go, God, I'm sad take it, it's yours, and we move on. We go, God, I'm sad. But we believe in redemption. 
We believe in the redemptive power of radical change through Jesus. So grieve and then move forward in faith that God is going to redeem. It's not about effort. This is about your heart to God. I love Psalm 30, verse 5. Weeping may stay overnight, but there is joy in the morning. This is God's plan for your life. Life Life-changing joy. That's what he's after. That's what he wants from you. Joy. Because he wants all of you. Let's close today. Uh, Just by reading the last verse of John 15 out loud together. It's verse 11. Let's read it out loud together as a declaration to each other of what God wants for us in our lives. Would you read this with me? It'll be on the screen. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Would you pray with me? Lord, it's hard to open the heart. Sometimes it's hard to just make space. But it's hard to open the heart to who we truly are and believe that you love us and are for us. It's hard to believe sometimes that you can work in those parts of our heart that we haven't shared with anyone. The hurt we've experienced, the disappointment, the longing, the loss. But you are the great gardener and you love us. You prune us to make us more beautiful. You prune us to, so that the world may see that there's an option for true joy. I think of Psalm 139. Search me, O God. And I pray that for my friends here. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. God, in our grief, may you turn that grief to joy. May that heart change. May the things in our life that we struggle with fade away, not out of our own will of trying to change, but real spirit-led change. We believe you can and will do it. So I pray for encouragement for us this week. Thank you for Jesus, through whom we have life, life to the full, life everlasting. Thank you for promising to never leave us nor forsake us, that we are yours for eternity. Continue to work in us, God, in light of that love. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.